ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. It's the boss who thinks leadership is all about them. That leader best described as an egotistical, narcissistic maniac and it's the headline that says, The Man That Saved a BBC Orchestra. It's bad bosses, yes, but now it has a name. Zombie leadership. Dead ideas that still walk among us. Hello, I'm Lisa Leong, and on this episode of This Working Life, I'm joined by Alex Haslam, Professor of Social and Organisational Psychology at the University of Queensland. Alex is the co-author of a new academic paper, and it's so controversial that he had to come out of hiding with his flamethrower to speak up. More on that later. And Alex, we're familiar with the idea of zombies from horror films, but what's a zombie leader and are they out for my brains? As, yeah, that, well, the answer to the second question, yes, they are, and probably a lot more besides. Um, <laughs> but a zombie leader and the zombie leadership just refers to a set of ideas that are dead and have been sort of internalised by people in leadership positions. So these are, if you like, people who are walking around thinking that they're doing leadership, but actually just regurgitating ideas that have no empirical or theoretical value and, in fact, are incredibly destructive. So, yes, and that's why they're after your head. (laughs) (laughs) Now, destructive, that doesn't sound good at all. So can you unpack that a bit for us? So why is it so destructive? Well, I mean, it's to do with the content of the ideas and and they're, they're really ideas about leadership being all about leaders. And so they're the idea that you just find these wonderful people and you put them in these high positions and you just let them go and they you don't really need to do anything else. They don't need to involve followers or team members or anything like that. So they go off and they kind of do leadership in inverted commas. And at the end of the day, everybody else is pretty much a victim of their leadership and their grandiosity and narcissism and hubris. And those things, I think, sort of wreak havoc throughout society, not just in businesses and corporations, but they can do it in sports teams, they can do it in community groups. You know, it's a pretty universal phenomenon. Um, I think it's existed for a long time, actually. And and I, I know in response to the stuff that we've written around this, you know, actually, a lot of people come together and say, I know exactly what you're talking about. Mm. And, and the point of the paper was really just to give it a name, so that you can call it out when you come across it. And, and I think we come across it all the time. And I love a term that you use in your paper, the Hollywood narrative of leadership. That, for me, really did (laughs) um, nail it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that just the idea that we all know, you know, you go to see a film, there's some sort of crisis or disaster, and lo and behold, some one person kind of plucked from obscurity, and they're going to solve it all by themselves, you know, that that type of thing. And I think that's just, as you say, a narrative that we invoke and and imagine is going to play out whatever the crisis, whatever the situation. And that's not how it works. Again, I think, you know, it's a very powerful fiction, but ultimately a very destructive one, amongst other things, because it disempowers everybody else and discourages them from playing their part in dealing with the collective problems that we all face. So who or what is perpetuating this then? I mean, you put your hand up for academics, but it's not just academics, is it? Yeah, well, no, I think it serves the interests of people at the top of organisations and elites. I mean, and in particular, people at the top of corporations who can justify giving themselves massive pay rise. I mean, really colossal pay rises. In the last 30 or so years, the, the pay rise of senior executives have risen by something like 400% at the same time that the wages of real workers have gone up 
not at all. And you can only do that if you imagine that the people at the top are really worth that kind of adulation and, and that form of valorization, if you like. And zombie leadership provides a justification for that because you're saying, look, we really need these expert people and they're very, very thin on the ground. You can't find anybody who has this skill set. And so when we do find those people, we have to reward them handsomely. And those, I mean, zombie leaders themselves hunt in packs and they look after each other. They appoint each other to their respective leadership positions. They review each other's work and they and they specialize in uh, mutual admiration and remuneration to go with it. And it's really interesting, isn't it, that there's these quite old-fashioned, out-of-date ideas of leadership, and we've moved on since then, but the zombie leadership is, as you say, the walking dead, these things that will not go away. That's the basic idea, yeah. And I mean, and they go right back to, you know, some like the 19th century and people like Carlyle and great man theory. And the idea, I mean, one of his great lines was, you know, history is ultimately the story of the great men who have walked amongst us. I mean, that was his story. That was his idea. Um, and I think that idea that we, I think, learn in school, I often say, you know, my first exposure to sort of history was my parents gave me the Ladybird book of Alexander the Great, you know, and the idea was Alexander conquered Egypt and Asia and Mesopotamia and all the rest of it. Well, no, he didn't. He had armies with him and, and without them, he could have done nothing. And ultimately, his success is the story of the success of his armies and what people did in his name. But as Alex points out, these dead ideas of leadership don't work. It doesn't work in sports teams. It doesn't work in community groups. It doesn't work in in organisations. Ultimately, disempowers the rank and file members of, of an organisation and discourages them from participating. You need everybody to feel that they're in the boat in order to get the maximum amount of rowing going on. So, Alex, what are the four components of zombie leadership? Just the idea that only leaders can lead. Leadership is something that only leaders do. Mm. Well, again, evidence is that in any effective group, everybody's doing leadership. Everybody is making a contribution. Everybody's trying to persuade each other and help each other to achieve group goals. So in a successful team, it doesn't matter where it's... Uh, I think the last time I was on here, we were talking about the Matildas. The, the Matildas were not all about Sam Kerr. Without Sam Kerr, Australia have scored four and made it through to the round of 16. What a performance beating. What a statement for the squad as well, that they're deep enough, they don't have to rely on Sam. Matildas have enough great, amazing, very skillful players to pull up a 4-0 win against a very strong Canadian side. Huge result for Australia. Never say die mentality really lives on throughout this game. They were about the team as a whole working, pulling together. It was, in Rick Charlesworth's terms, it was a leader-full team. Okay, that's the first thing. Mm, Love it. The second thing is that leaders have qualities that set them apart from normal people, from ordinary people. And that's wrong. Actually, leaders, if they have qualities, they're qualities that connect them to ordinary people, not that set them apart. They're not above them, superior to them. They're not apart from them. They need to be a part of them. The third component of zombie leadership is group success is attributed to the leader. But Alex says... No, it's about the team. And we need to focus much more when we're giving out a claim on, on recognising the collective efforts that made it possible. And I, and I think uh, we often develop narratives and procedures and rituals and, and ceremonies and celebrations that, that just, you know, raise leaders up and leave everybody behind. And I think that's 
not helpful often. And then that final thing is just the idea that history and the way we understand it is about great leaders. Well, no, history is around collectives and it's about the mobilization of large numbers of people to put their shoulder to the to the collective wheel. And, and I think that's really important for us to, to reflect on when we think about the range of challenges that we face today, whether that's climate change or, or all manner of problems. You know, we're no, there's no one person, Greta Thunberg or anyone else for that matter, who is going to come along and save us. This is something we have to do together and all of us have to play a part and we have to be encouraged to play a part. And zombie leadership is the seed of our own destruction in this regard. And it's very important we call it out and it's very important we have conversations about it and it's very important ultimately that we stop it. Makes me think about the media and you mention again in your paper the type of headlines that we see regularly like the man who saved a BBC orchestra. Yeah. Of course, you know, then it becomes part of our lexicon, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, when we were doing the article and we won the tables we made, we just came up with examples of where you find these things in everyday life. And it's a trivial job to find them because they're everywhere, you know. And in fact, the things that I talked about, it's really hard to see messages which say, well, you know, this was a really high-functioning team and everybody played an effort and that's why it was successful. That's not never a headline. You've really struggle to find a headline like that and lists of things you know great peculiar skills that leaders have that make them better than everybody else all those types of things or the qualities of every natural born leader the forms of leadership that are good for all of us all of these kinds of things that you see are evidence of it and they're, and they're very thick on the ground and I think to the point that we never even really question them we do because that's just what we think leadership is and it's kind of taken over look so you mentioned things like the wreaking havoc and the disease disastrous consequences. Can we really go deeper on this? So what do you see as being the main implications and cost of this zombie leadership? I think the the two main costs, and again, we have really a lot of data on this, is one is that ultimately re- reduces the productivity of groups. If you imagine that as a, as a, as a group, you're going to succeed because you've simply because you've got a great leader, the chances are you won't because everybody else will stand by and say, well, if you're so good, you just get on with it. You know, if you're so good at this thing and leave it to them, well, actually, you need their efforts in order for the group to succeed. And the second thing is, is I think it really is, is about health and well-being. I think the kind of zombie leadership, again, is a, creates a very kind of divided world, whether we're talking about the world of organizations or the world at large, in which you have kind of winners and losers. And I think that is bad for the the health of those groups because people are less engaged. They feel like outsiders. They feel that leadership is something that's being done to them rather than something that they're part of. Mm. I also think it's bad for leaders themselves because actually it turns them in for rather than being sort of team players, it turns them into egotistical, narcissistic maniacs, you know, (laughs) um, uh, you know, and that's not, you know, it's not a good look. Alex, um, just to let you know that I've never watched a horror movie because I'm too scared. So I don't actually know how to kill a zombie. So how do we kill zombie leadership? Well, yeah, that, I, I, I have, I'm not a world expert on zombies, but in the context of writing an article, I did kind of read a lot, actually quite a bit, because there was quite funny stuff out there. I mean, and one of the resources we used a lot in the book, was a bit of an aside here, but was a, an article by U.S. Strategic Command, which was a very serious paper looking at, at how the U.S. might respond to a zombie attack, um, which was very interesting in a way. And they made quite a lot of points in there. And of course, the point about that was they were imagining a sort of unknown attack from a, 
from a, an enemy that you didn't really understand. And there's a little bit of that here. Like we don't, I, I, I don't know all the answers to that. And indeed, to imagine that I did, or my colleagues do, I think would be to fall prey to zombie leisure. I think this is a problem that we all have to confront. We all have to work out what the solutions are. And I think those solutions are always localized. You know, they re- depend on the type of group in which the problems manifest themselves. And the, one of the big, I think, problems in this literature is a kind of one size fits all solution. I don't think there is. And actually, what I do know about zombie movies is basically they end up killing them off in, in a very distinct way that's peculiar to the particular form in which this zombie sector has manifested itself. So uh, again, it's always about being sensitive to the group and its needs on the ground. But again, I think these, there's traps there for everybody. And it would be hubristic of me to imagine that I and my colleagues don't fall into them from time to time because we absolutely do. So uh, what are some of the, I guess, helpful ways we can potentially move our conception of leadership that might be the antidote to the zombie leadership? Zoe, our producer, suggested flamethrowers. <laughs> yeah. So what's our equivalent? Flamethrowers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's just, well, I think flamethrowers can be very effective. But, I, you know, again, in the right circumstances, you know, don't do it if, it's, if the attack's taking place at a petrol station, you know, as it were. <laughs> right. So for me, like the starting, point for all this and when I talk about this with my students and so on whenever I give talks on this I always come back to the definition of of leadership what is leadership and leadership is a process whereby one or more people motivate other people to contribute to the achievement of collective goals by shaping beliefs values and understandings in context so the key point to see there is it's a group process and that without followership without people to be influenced, without people to do things in the name, as it were, of the leader, the example of Alexander we had earlier, without his armies, as it were, there's nothing. So without followership, there is no leadership. So focusing on followership and where this is happening and how it's happening, I think is a really important place to start. And I think our discussions of leadership should always be followed by, okay, but where's the followership? I did something recently where I went into an organization and it was quite a big organization, a senior one. And, and the, the, the managers all sat around the table, myself and the colleagues, and said, well, we spent a year devising our strategic plan and we're really, really happy with it. But we've got a problem because nobody is, is paying any attention to it and we can't get any buy-in from the middle managers. And you're going, yeah. But maybe you shouldn't have started from there. Mm. Maybe you needed to start by involving them in the process of developing the strategy rather than imagining that your strategy is just the Sermon on the Mount. You know, and again, I think they had fallen hook, line and sinker for zombie leadership. And that that's a very, very common experience, I think. You know, I, I'm going to go back this afternoon. I, I, I'm pretty sure I'm going to come across it later today. You know, like, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's <Yeah>. everywhere. <laughs> it's everywhere. You've done an experiment to see performance with and without a leader. Yeah. Can you explain how the experiment worked and what yeah, you yeah. found? Well, this is funny, yeah, because this was when I this was a study that we did nearly thirty years ago, actually, with colleagues when I was at the ANU, and um, we did a study, and we had sort of three conditions. We put people into groups, and they had to do, they had to do a task, a classic kind of group task, problem solving task, survival in the desert. And what we did was we had either we didn't appoint a leader to the group. Or we appointed the leader randomly to the group, just from within the group. Or we got them to go through a rigorous process in which we asked them to list why they were such a great leader and what made them better than everybody else. And then on that basis, we selected the person who objectively seemed to be the best leader for the group. And we made a bit of a thing. We said, you've done really, really well on this task, so you are the person who's fit to lead this group. And then we got them to do the group task. 
And which of those three conditions did best? Well, it was actually the randomly chosen leader. The group that did second best was the, was the group with no leader. And the group that did worse was the group with the elite leader. Okay. <laughs> and why? Because everybody again said, well, okay, you know, I don't need to do anything because you're so wonderful, you know, like that. And I can just sit <laughs> back. But then the two measures of that were how they performed on the task, but also whether they stuck to the group decision. So mm. it was, you know, it's a sort of survival thing. And one of the measures of group efficacy is group cohesion. Well, after you've appointed a leader like that, the group had no cohesion. Nobody was committed to the decision they they came to. So, and again, that's something you see in organizations all the time. Yeah, leaders come up with a thing and people go they'll nod their heads and they'll go out the room and go and do something completely different so there's no commitment on the ground because people don't believe in the leader and they don't believe in the, the ideas that have been generated by the leader that's why group buying group engagement group process is so critical and, and it's interesting that the group with no leader also wasn't as well performing as the randomly chosen leader do you want to just go into that a little bit yeah yeah i mean it's interesting i mean in this particular instance you know someone sort of you know you needed someone to take sort of response responsibility and so on. You needed, or you needed the group to take responsibility. Mm. The random leader thing makes it clear that everybody is going to get a chance at being a leader. So you, you need to engage and think about what you're going to do when you have your turn. I mean, I'm not suggesting that's a recipe for every kind of situation, but in situations where the group has an understanding of what it wants to do, and it has a, if you like, a spree de core and a, and a strong sense of shared social identity or usness, then I think that can really work. And actually, that is a model that's used in, in other contexts. And I think lots of small, like scientific teams use that kind of method where you rotate those kinds of functions. And I think it can work really well, not least because it gives people experience and skills. It gives them a bit of an opportunity to to share the sort of CV enhancement around, which is an important part of these types of things too. If in the process of doing your group work, only one person's CV is getting brushed up and and, and beautified, that's a problem. And, and as a leader, you want to be doing something to make sure everybody's CV is looking good so that the group looks good, but you've got succession, you've got, you've got a future as a unit. There's a brilliant approach to avoiding zombie leadership coming up. It involves a medal. Stay with us for that. Alex, if I'm listening and I'm the zombie, (laughs) can I do anything about it? Try harder, you know, like talk to people, you know, about, about not just about yourself and like your leadership, but maybe find out a bit more about theirs and look to include them more in the, in the kind of things that you're doing. So uh, again, come down from the mountain and meet your people type thing would be my core advice. I, I have to say too, that's hard work. I mean, one of the things that really comes through in our work too is leadership is hard work. And one of the nice things about zombie leadership is it isn't hard work because you can just sit in your ivory tower and just reflect on on your own wonderfulness. There's a part of that that's nice and reassuring and comforting and comfortable. But I think, again, if you are genuinely interested in improving as a leader, yeah, come down the mountain, talk to us, please. And then if I work with a zombie leader, how might I entice them down the mountain? Um, well, you could put this article in their inbox, I guess, to start. <laughs> Yeah, I'd like to start a discussion group. Could we, and I've got this article I'd like to talk about. Um, yeah, so um, I, I think, well, I think talking about your colleagues, and I think also uh, I really do sort of share the understanding of this. So it's not just you who's talking about it. I think that's always the thing. Like, And raise it as an issue in, in, in context where you can say, look, I really think we as a group need to think about the kind of leadership models we got going on here, and we need to challenge those. And, and I think one of the things, I mean, there's so much of our work hangs off this, but 
a lot of toxicity, whether you're talking about sexism or racism or other forms of discrimination in the workplace, I think start with zombie leadership. So actually, because they don't provide a framework for having inclusive conversations about who we are and what we're going to do. And I think if you want to make progress on those fronts, which we all do, I think, then this is likely a problem you're going to have to deal with along the way. And I think if leaders are genuine about wanting to solve those problems, and I don't believe they always are, then they too should want to be part of those conversations. And I think trying to make them attractive for everybody and trying to create contexts in which people can come together in a more kind of equal way and start to rethink how we're doing leadership in this place or in this team or in this organisation. And Alex, you also recommend that we do a bit of an audit of how much we're spending on leadership development, right? Well, yeah, that's a really good... I mean, it's not clear how much the leadership development industry is in Australia, but it's upwards of $2 billion a year and potentially as much as 10 billion. But a lot of that money is is well and truly uh, wasted. And it's basically just a vehicle for self-aggrandizement for, for those people at the top of organizations. So I'd say look through your portfolio of things and get rid of those things which are serving zombie leadership and not the interests of your team or organization. You shared the AIS Rick Charlesworth story about leaderful approach. Do you have another example, a real case study of a successful leadership approach? I mean, the main stories that we have that have, and the main bits of data that we've got which really speak to this alternative model are the two domains that really come to mind. One is sport and the other is the military. And uh, another colleague of mine, Kim Peters, who was here at UQ, we did some work with Marines at Limpston in Devon in, in the UK. So these are elite commandos going off for training. And one of the things that we did was we tracked these people over the course of 32 weeks as they went through this elite training program. And one of the interesting things about the commando training is that every week, at the end of every week, end of every sort of set block of exercises, all of the recruits, they give votes to each other uh, for their leadership. And at the end of the program, there's a medal, it's called the commando medal, it goes to the person who gets the most votes over the course of the thing. And we were interested in what predicts who gets the commando medal. And we had at the beginning of the thing, we had measures of the participants' leader identity, the extent to which they thought of themselves as a leader and wanted the program to be a vehicle for their leadership, or the extent to which they thought of themselves primarily as a member of the group and they wanted to use the training to develop their engagement with an attachment to the group. So which of those things do you think predicted who ended up getting a medal? Well, the answer was it was the people who cared about the group who got the medal, not the people who cared about themselves. And too often in this space, like we're just as leaders where we want the leader badge, right? We We want that thing. We want the certification that says we're a great leader. At the end of the day, Other people in your team, they don't care that much about that. What they need to know is that you care about them. And again, the people who walk away with the medals are the people who care about the groups that they lead. I think that the history of effective leadership is one in which leaders have always looked to connect with and be integrate an integrated part of the groups they lead rather than le- about leaders wanting to stand above the group and be recognised 
as it were, as leaders in capital letters and with lights and sparkly signals and signs and, and wonderful music and a, a great a gala event around it. We've done so much to, I think, aggrandize leaders. And I think so much of the sort of, as we talk about in the paper, the leadership industrial complex is about making a world that's safe for zombie leadership. And I think it's time that we started to unpick that and maybe fight back. Thanks to my guest, Alex Haslam, Professor of Social and Organisational Psychology at the University of Queensland, the co-author of a new academic paper, Zombie Leadership, Dead Ideas That Still Walk Among Us. We'll link to it on our ABC episode webpage. And just a quick recap, here are the four components of zombie leadership again. One, only leaders can lead. Two, leaders have qualities that set them apart from ordinary people. Three, group success should be attributed to leaders. And four, history is the story of great leaders. Remember instead to focus on followership. Don't leave your people out. Involve them in your decisions and strategy development. If that fails, just go with the flamethrower. <laughs> it's going to be flying around. I'm Lisa Leong. Thanks for listening to This Working Life. It's produced by Zoe Ferguson and mixed by Matthew Crawford. Next time on This Working Life, your right to disconnect. What does this mean for you and your organisation? Don't miss it. This episode was produced on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Until next time, work it, baby. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.